At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where we bring you conversations with experts in fields related to urban farming and dive a little deeper into some important issues of our times. Bill McDorman is the executive director of Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance in Ketchum, Idaho. He got his start in the bioregional seed movement while in college in 1979 when he helped start Garden City Seeds. In 1984, he started Seeds Trust High Altitude Gardens, a mail-order seed company he ran successfully until he sold it in 2013. He authored the book Basic Seed Saving in 1994. Then in 2010, he and his wife, Bell Starr, created Seed School, a nationally recognized week-long training. Bill is a passionate and knowledgeable presenter who inspires his audiences to learn to save their own seeds. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Greg. How are you? Oh, awesome. And, you know, I always appreciate our time together. It's it's a lot of fun. So thanks for being here. Yes. Yeah. I feel the same way. And, we, you know, it's, we're getting used to getting into trouble together. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. Let it happen. It's good. There you go. <laughs> Tonight, we're going to be talking about the actual art of collecting and saving and processing seeds. So we thought we would just jump in and Talk about some of the challenges we're having and fun we're having actually saving seeds this fall. So let's go, Bill. Yeah. Well, let me just give a little bit of an introduction. For new seed savers especially, uh, this could save you some time. That of the whole universe of things that we cover in our seed schools and that I've learned over 40 years trying to grow and save and clean and you know harvest and clean and store my own seeds, the one place where you have to have your own experience. You don't have to to get started. You you know, you can hack your way through it. But the one place in order to improve what you're doing, you have to do it through experience. And so in seed school, I always say this is the craft of seed saving. You can get the information. You know, the genetics are out there. You can watch webinars these days. Somebody on one of my shows once said, you know, Bill, probably all of the technical details you would need to be a really great breeder um, are online now. They're all, and most of it's free. You could find it if you just took the time and went through the courses or whatever and then applied it, you know, in your own life. It would take a, a long time, but it's there. The information is there. The one place where you couldn't master this, unless you did it yourself over and over, is the relative small scale, you know, harvesting, threshing, and cleaning of your own seeds. And that's what we're what I'd love to talk about tonight. Is the, if people have heard about the little trick 
if they've stumbled on something that's helped them, if they've had a bad experience at first and they've overcome it, or if they're still just trying to figure something out. This is where we can all help each other a lot, why communities of seed savers are so important, is that we all in a community don't have to learn all this stuff on our own anymore, but we can speed up the communities learning it by sharing information. And so, so along those lines in my life, one of the big breakthroughs was a book um, called Seed to Seed. And it w- the author is Susan Ashworth. And you can still find this book. And it was put together originally. The idea was to gather all of the tricks of the trade that had been learned by the seed savers in the um, Seed Savers Exchange out of uh-huh. Decorah, Iowa. That's gone on to, in those days it wasn't, but that's gone on to become the largest seed saving organization in the world. And after about 10 years, they, they were really beginning to realize that this was what was of value to them is just the practical ideas. And so they decided to put all that they'd learned so far in a book. Dr. Susan Ashworth agreed to be sort of the editor and author of the book. And she had a whole lifetime of experience herself. Her father was a really famous corn breeder. In fact, there's still an Ashworth corn out there. And somebody told me once that the majority of the corn grown in the United States has some of Dr. Ashworth's um, genetic work in it, all corn that's being sweet corn. When this book came out, it was fabulous for me because I learned so many little tricks. One of my favorite was there was a variety of bean. I was having a hard time threshing, getting the beans out of the shells. And they said, oh, yeah, I tried everything. Somebody in there in the, in the seed savers exchange, and they said, yeah, you, th- you dry them out thoroughly, throw them in a burlap bag, tie up the end so nothing comes out, and then put it on a soft piece of ground. You don't want to do this on asphalt. That, right. And drive over it with your truck. Oh, wow. Back and forth, over and over and over. And he said, and it'll work perfectly. And, and it won't break the beans because it pushes them into the soft earth, but it will break them out of all their shells. And I thought, wow, who figured that out? <laughs> no so that's, that's what I'm introducing to people tonight, is that there are a million little adventures that you get to go on now if you're becoming a seed saver. And you get to figure a lot of this stuff out yourself. And if you find somebody who's ahead of you in this stuff, in your local area especially, glue yourself to them <laughs> and ask them questions because this really is where we can become, well, in a sense, I guess the old language is we can become apprentices, you know, and after a while, maybe we'll become journeymen and journeywomen, you know, around this fine craft again of seed saving. And one of the ways that I save seeds isn't so sophisticated. I basically grow things in my yard that are open pollinated and I let them go to seed and then I let them self-plant so that, you know, a lot of things just come (laughs) up year after year after year in my yard that I planted 5, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. You know, it does not. That's part of the, I think, the industrial hangover that we're through. We think that it has to be, you know, there's some myths that, that we've learned through our seed schools and meeting lots and lots of really successful, powerful and important seed savers. And one of them is that it doesn't have to be industrial. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be done with machinery. And in fact, maybe the best seed saving we do doesn't have to be done at all. Like you're saying, see, you know, these plants know how to reseed themselves and go to seed in a right. lot of areas. What, what's better than that? And, and somehow all really great old gardeners I've met know that volunteers are the best plants anyway. Right. And that's what happens when you allow things to go to seed on itself. That doesn't, you know, we think, oh, well, I can't call myself a seed saver because it did it all itself. And I'd like to differ. 
I think that you're a seed saver because you're smart enough now to allow the things that can take care of themselves better to do that. Right. That's seed saving. Uh-huh. Yeah. So con- congratulations. <laughs> well, thanks. So here's one of my big challenges. We Every year, Bill and Bell and Kari Spencer and Janice Norton and I get together and we throw a big party here in Phoenix called the Great American Seed Up. And we do it in the September timeframe every year. And one of the things that happened last year, this is a really fun story, actually. I, I had a guy that came and helped me work here at the Urban Farm about a year ago. And I tossed him a bag of carrot seeds. And, you know, when we're harvesting seeds out of the yard, you know, we could easily come up with four, eight, 10, 12, you know, ounces a pound of seeds. So I gave him a bag of probably six ounces of carrot seeds and I figured he knew what he was doing and he planted them all. <laughs> he planted all the seeds and how, how many seeds, let's just say it was four ounces. How many seeds do you think are in four ounces of? Well, there are 600 seeds in two grams. There's about 300 seeds a gram. So four ounces is four times 28, roughly. So, so 100. um, 110 grams in four ounces times 30. Well, you're into, you know, 30,000, 30 to 60,000 yeah. seeds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's enough. So for, I have this. That's enough for an acre. <laughs> exactly. So he planted out these carrots in an area of my front yard that's like 10 by 10. So I have this, wow. literally have this forest of carrots and, you know, we tried to thin them and thin them, thinning them was futile. Um, so I just let them all go to seed. So I have two five gallon buckets of seed, carrot seed heads that have been dried. Oh, great. Sitting on the back patio here. Yeah. And, you know, and I jumped in to try and process them. And, you know, my first step was, well, I'll just, cause they're dry. So they're crunchy. I just grab a seed head and I, crunch off the top and throw them in the bucket. They're not right. coming apart so easily. So that, you know, that right. seemed a little bit futile. What do I do with these two buckets of seeds? Well, you know, good question. Great question. Because I've got some boxes and buckets around here of different kinds of things. And that seems to be what happens, especially with new seed savers. You know, we're, we're finally, we know how important it is. We get all excited in the spring. We get new varieties. We actually plan our gardens out. We get them planted. We grow them. And they actually produce seed, you know, miracle. And then we do what you did, you know. We don't have a lot of time or space, so we kind of, you know, we winnow it down in some ways. Like, just take the seed heads off, put them in five-gallon buckets, and then what? And they sit around, sometimes for years. I've been to some really great seed savers' houses, and they've got um, closets and garages filled with projects like this. Just, you know, this is not unusual. (laughs) behavior. And so, you know, it's carrot seeds are really interesting. First of all, you know, where's the seed? If you look at a seed head from carrots, it doesn't look like carrot seeds that you buy. They look like little ticks, almost like little bugs. They have legs, they have legs on them. And so I'm trying to remember the official name that they use for taking off those little legs. Basically what, you know, one of the techniques for doing that is to put all the seeds once you get them in a can or some sort of bucket with marbles, round marbles, and you just roll the marbles around. You don't, you don't want anything to actually crush the seed itself, but rolling around with all this weight and all this stuff going on sometimes rolls those little, those little legs off. There are other 
methods for doing that. There are dehullers that are made specifically for it. But here's another one of those myths. If uh-huh. you're just using these seeds for your home garden, there's no reason to do that. I mean, you could theoretically, even if you didn't get around to it, go out and just plant those seed heads, you know, and you'd get these little circles of carrots coming up. All and right. then you could fit out the ones that you wanted. So, you know, make it work for you. Make it work in your time frame with the amount of energy you have to get it back. It's really a magical and durable system. Now, if we're going to be part of a seed exchange or take our seeds down to the seed library, we should probably clean them up. They just take up less space in, a, in an envelope or whatever. And so what the best thing I've found is I'd get a, a pair of really thick leather gloves and, and I rub those heads and then the seeds oh. that come out of it in, in my hands with those gloves. And you have to have gloves. Um, yeah. Carrot seeds will cut your hands up. They're just one of that's just one of the things that'll happen. They'll get raw after a while. You may get away with it a little bit in the beginning, but get a good pair of gloves to do it, and then you can winnow those seeds. Now, what does that mean? Chaff, they call it. Well, chaff is the stuff that comes out that looks about the same size and shape as your seeds. You know, it's the other stuff in there, but it's not a seed. So, how do we mm-hmm. separate? The seeds from the chaff, we call it. Everybody might be more familiar with the term when it's used that way. Well, it turns out that carrot seeds are heavier than the chaff. And so all you have to do is pour, put them in a bucket or a box and pour a stream of this stuff, the seeds and the chaff, in front of a fan. And the fan will blow all the lighter stuff away. And and if you set yourself up with the right strength of wind from the fan and the right height and a nice enough box or bowl underneath it, you can actually capture all the seeds, not all of them, but a lot of them, the heavy ones anyway, which will be better, and all the light stuff will blow away. And that way you can separate that stuff out. And you can keep doing this several times to get it really, really clean if you're a small small grower. Not necessary, though. Even, for, I'd say... You know, when we when I ran the seed company, we would um, put a little thing in our catalog every year saying, you know, folks, at some point it's not worth it for us to get the seed 100% clean. We apologize. Though it's going to be a little chaff in your packet with your seeds, but don't worry about it. It's just there, and you can actually plant that with the seeds if you need to. Right. And you know what? Over like a 28-year period, I never had anybody complain. You know, it doesn't have to be perfectly clean. I think this is what we're learning as consumers. We've been set with this artificially high boundary that just doesn't work for us as small-scale people. So, so that's what one I would the, do. And, yeah, one of, one of the act- things I was hoping to do with it is have them available at the Great American CETA. Oh, great. Well, you know, if nothing else, Greg, bring those buckets to the CETA. I'll bring screens. If we could, those sometimes screens can help in the beginning to sift out the big head parts from the from the seats and chaff. And I'll bring a fan, and we'll we'll do that in one of the workshops. We'll actually, and then we'll get people to to stick around after the workshop that are so fascinated by the process that want to practice that we'll get all your seats clean for you. How's that? (laughs) Perfect. I was over at a buddy of mine's house recently, and he showed me this wall and when i say wall it's it was probably 24 inches tall uh, 18 inches wide and about five inches thick and it was this contraption that you hook a vacuum there's a wood behind and a plexiglass cover on the front and you hook a vacuum up to one end of it right you know what these are yeah well they they make professional seed cleaners that way 
it will blow air through it and all the light fluffy chaff is blown out and the heavier seeds mm-hmm. fall to the bottom and you can turn off the vacuum and dump those out. Yeah, there's all sorts of equipment. It's fascinating. If you want to get into, we need master seed cleaners, small scale master seed cleaners. If you want to learn a craft that's durable and be of value mm-hmm. to your community, then this could be something that you want to learn how to do. And I still have a world of respect for the people I've met that do it really well. Casey O'Leary at the Snake River Seed Co-op was, I was visiting one time and we had a lot to talk about and she was talking about all this stuff. And while she was doing that, she was cleaning her carrot seed. And I watched her and it was just a, it was this fluid motion, no wasted steps getting the seed just as clean as she needed it for her seed company right in front of me. And I thought, damn, she's been doing this for a long time at this level. There's no way I was, would be as good as she was at doing that. And so it's just a, it's a awe and wonder. I love that. And so you, everyone out there listening can be a person like this. Just get started. Yeah. Just jump in and play with it. I guess that's really what it is, right? Well, and let me just add on one little more story about Casey O'Leary and cleaning seeds and enlisting available people to help you. We did a fundraiser for the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance in Boise, Idaho is where she is. And we showed a film outdoors at this cafe and everybody's there. And then as part of the evening, uh, Casey had promised this cafe that she would bring the dessert. Well, what she did was bring all these heirloom watermelons. And I can't remember which moon and stars or it was some relatively rare heirloom melon. And these melons have seeds in them. And Casey is growing these melons for the seed. But she brings these melons to an event with like 40 or 50 people all sitting around tables. They're drinking their wine. It's dessert time. And so she has, there's some helpers there. And we all pass out these pre-sliced pieces of melon for everybody for dessert. And it's just delicious. But before anybody can begin, she... You have to um, take the um, seeds out. Everybody, there are little cups and jars at every place. I want you to spit the seeds in into the jars. We we, we are not going to waste a single seed here tonight. That's nice. your job. And she cleaned all her melon seed for this melon right there, had everybody do it while they were having dessert. It was just fabulous. So, you know, be creative. <laughs> There's more than one way to do this. Yeah. So what is the most interesting thing you're harvesting seeds from this fall? Boy, for me personally, and it's just, it shows the stage that I'm at in trying new things. It's going to be chia, you know, chia seeds. Wow. Oh, yeah. I I finally found uh, Joseph Lofthouse, who has a seed list called Landrace Seeds. You can find him online. He's a fabulous seed saver, seed steward in Paradise, Utah. And um, he heard that I was having trouble growing chia in my yard here in Arizona, and he knew exactly what was wrong. It turns out that many of the varieties of chia being passed around, the kind that you buy in the store if you get chia seeds, are a variety that grows closer to the equator down in Mexico, and it has a day length problem. It just takes 200 days for it to grow in our where we are. It just doesn't go to seed very fast, and that's what happened to me last year. So Joseph sent me, on his, under his own volition, thank you, Joseph, some seeds to what he called an early variety, like a 40-day variety of chia. And lo and behold, it's fl- it's flowering. Oh, it's so beautiful. If you haven't grown chia, beautiful blue flowers. And really, I've never, I, I, and this is maybe instructive to other seed savers out there. 
I've been growing and saving seeds for 40 years, right? And, and I, they even let me teach in seed school still. And yet <laughs> I'm still growing and saving seeds to things. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't even know what the dried pods are going to look like. I have, you know, I know what a chia seed looks like because I ha- I put some in my tea sometimes, you know, and they, they end up looking like tadpole eggs after a while. Yep. You know, they're, they're the, one of the new health rages. But I have no idea how I'm going to do these. And so that, for me, to answer your question, that's my most exciting thing. And, and on a later show, I can tell you how I figured it out, you know. I, I'm going to have to watch them every day as they start to dry out to make sure they don't just all drop on the ground before I get there. They may be hard to get out of their things. I don't know. They're in the mint family. My guess is that they'll be in little cups and that I'll be able to pour some of them out and the others I'll have to crush. And then mm-hmm. I'll have that you know, winnowing problem. So I'll let you know. Oh, very good. Now that you know, that really surprises me. Uh, I figured you were going to tell me it was one of your new kinds of grains that you were going after. Well, I still have to some of that to clean too. A bunch of them. My purple Tibetan barley. I've got some white Sonoran wheat, some rye, rebel rye. <laughs> and so, yeah, no, I've got a lot of adventure. And again, it's the same problem. Since I have not been, you know, growing and saving seeds on the scale that I'm on right now at my house, there's a backup. I'm putting them in boxes. I've got them on mm. tables. I've got them on my porch, you know. And so how I get through to the next stage, I'm kind of waiting. I'm using the time I have now to hand pollinate corn and to harvest tomatoes for seed. And those you kind of have to keep up on or they start rotting. Right. And for the dry stuff like that I can set aside, like the grains, I'm just going to wait until it gets colder. And then I'll have time this fall when I'm not actually in the garden. That's what I'm hoping. So so with grains, they grow on stock. So, you know, they, they shoot up a grassy stock and shoot up a seed head. You just harvest the seed heads? Just yes. cut them and harvest yeah. the seed heads, let them dry? Yeah. You know, an exception might be oats. Uh-huh. I grew hollas, hollas, or what they call naked oats this year. And you can, I have a, I, I bought a sickle, you know, Ooh. a little hand grain cutter. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes me a liberal Democrat or not. Then I have my <laughs> own hammer and sickle, right? But, but I can grab bunches of the grains. And then what I do with those is I just slam them on the inside of a trash can, just the oh. whole big long stalk and the head. And you can hear the seeds come tinkling out. And so you just, you slam it a couple of times and there's no more seeds in it. And then I just throw that back down on the row where I cut it. And then I cut another little handful. And so oats are really great. I got enough oats. Well, I didn't get enough for my whole year, but my goal this winter is to grow enough oats so that I can eat oatmeal year round here. It's going to be my first sort of year round. I'll get enough of my own year round grain thing. They're just so easy and so wonderful. And I bought a little oat roller the other day so I can roll my own oats so they look like the ones you buy in the store. Nice. Make them faster here to cook. And when yeah, there is nothing like fresh grown, freshly harvested, fresh rolled oats for breakfast. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Once you do it, you'll never go back. I'm sort of hooked now. It's, yeah, it's really I'm going to be at your house in two weeks. Uh, I'm we'll coming to get some fresh oats. We'll do it. And I've got apricots I dried from my apricot trees. And boy, I'm telling you, this, this home living stuff can be really good on a good year. There you go. <laughs> when you you've done the same thing with flour, we haven't you? you you've grown enough to make your own bread. 
Yeah, Dr. Ralph Bush, who teaches at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, taught some of our grain schools. And he's been kind of keeping measurements. So as a general rule of thumb, on a 100-square-foot bed, you can grow about seven loaves of bread. So just that's a that's a John Jevons, you know, hundred square foot deep bed. Yeah. You can grow you can grow enough wheat to make about seven loaves of bread. And so what you would do is is you're right, you would break off just the seed heads and put those in a bucket. What Ralph does is he's got wooden boxes that he puts hardware cloth on the bottom, that quarter inch by a wire screen. Right. And he'll just put a layer down there loose. He'll pour everything in there, and then he'll just get in there and walk on it. That's how he threshes it. He kind of rubs it underneath his feet, and that seems, without hurting the seed too much, that seems to get enough of it out that he, he gets a good crop. And then he'll take that, and he'll run it through a screen once to get rid of all the big stuff, and then he'll take what's left and winnow it. He'll pour it in front of a fan and clean it up. So it's really not a bad process. And then what we do is we've got our own desktop flour mill now. It's called a mock mill. And if you go to the RockyMountainSeeds.org website, I think we have a code on there in our grain trials um, page that um, you can order your own mock mill and get like 10% off or 15% off. But anyway, it's a it's a horizontal stone flour mill. And it just, you know, when you pour, your, again, your own grain in there and you fresh mill it and then bake bread or make pancakes or whatever you're doing, wow. You know, and, and they explain it by saying that they're a volatile oil that's, that will be gone right after you break it, you know, right uh-huh. after you mill it. You start to volatize. And, and in those oils is flavor and nutrition. And so if you want to capture all of that, you want to use freshly milled flour. And it's like it elevates you to a new experience. In fact, Amy Halloran, who wrote a really good book about the grain revolution. I'm trying to think of the name. I'll, think, I'll get the name of the book here in a second. But anyway, she calls it the fresh flour movement. And it's starting to take hold nationwide you can actually seek out and find bakeries that are fresh milling their flour just before they bake their bread and one of which i know in southern arizona is barrio bread in oh yes yeah and i know that um actually chris bianco is fresh milling some uh white sonora wheat for here in phoenix yeah even there in phoenix yeah so a couple of things first of all you mentioned casey o'leary we had casey on the podcast Episode number 437, if you want to hear wow. from her, that was, a, that was an amazing episode. Oh, uh, but what yeah. I was really, really excited about, you also mentioned John Jevons. And what I was really excited about was that we had John Jevons on the show, episode 423 and 424. So if you go to urbanfarmpodcast.com and just type in their names, it'll show up. The curious thing about John Jevons was I just started recording him. And, you know, I have my pattern that I do for each podcast. And I just started recording. And, you know, I kind of followed the pattern, but he just kept talking and talking and talking. <laughs> and I just I just figured, all right, if this man wants to talk, I'm going to get him on, uh, you know, on the podcast. That's why we ended up with two consecutive podcast with my him God. and they probably uh, one of my favorites along with Michael Abelman and you of course well you know the one for me the the one uh, John Jevons podcast that you did is not just your a favorite it's historical yeah it's really an important document and i it's kind of like seed saving we were talking about you got out of the way you let it you let it <laughs> right happen. 
Yeah. You know, and it was, and uh, he's, what, how, 70? How old is he now? Um, I'm going to guess closer to, closer to a higher number. You know, he needs to tell this story. And he, I, that's what I felt like there's a, it's really important for us all to learn what he's learned. So we don't have to make all the same mistakes. And I got that. There was sort of this driving force in the, in the podcasting, but by all means, in fact, I just recommended it to someone today. That and Elliot Coleman. My other favorites are Michael Abelman. Oh, wow. I mean, I was so starstruck. Yeah. I was so starstruck when I was interviewing Michael Abelman. He's like, he's my hero. And I was actually nervous doing that one. Yeah. Don Tipping is another one. Casey, there's some really great, you know, you're doing great work and we're so happy and lucky that we've got these resources now. You know, when I got started, we didn't have those, you know, I had no idea. I, you know, who these people were or what really motivated them or what they did. And so now we can learn and it's just fabulous. Yeah. So um, So, I actually have, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say Amy Halloran, H-A-L-L-O-R-A-N. Her book is called The New Bread Basket. So if oh. you want to catch up on the fresh flour movement and that's uh, sweeping the country, but, you know, somewhat in response to the whole gluten issue, you know, we're finding if we go back to ancient and heritage grains and we do it right, by right, I mean the way it used to be done with 48-hour, you know, ferment sourdough, and we're using, you know, older varieties and things that have more protein and less gluten, and we fresh grind them, that people are actually healthy again. And that's, you know, or can be. I mean, you have to follow your own doctor's advice, but, but there's a real movement underlying this whole thing that says, yeah, you know, grains are causing problems right now, but maybe there's, it's more complicated than just giving up wheat. And she addresses that in the book. And it's really a beautiful book with lots of practical information in it. Yeah. Uh, that's from uh, Chelsea Green Publishing. Yes. So I have a question here. Uh, somebody shot okay. us over a question. Elizabeth from Davis, California said how, and this is kind of a little off topic, this is probably from last month's podcast, how is it possible to avoid the patented traits? An article in New York Times said that small breeders avoid purple carrots, for instance. Is that really what is necessary when developing varieties? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a big, big controversy, and I can't address the whole big thing. But to specifically answer your question is that at this point, we can't avoid them, maybe. And and I say that, you know, not perfectly because we don't even know what varieties are patented. There's been a flood of right. patented varieties hit even the certified organic seed market in our favorite catalogs. And and this is relatively new. And some of them aren't marked in the catalogs. And and some catalogs don't mark them at all. And some of them are around open pollinated, easy to save varieties like lettuce. And so it's it's going to be difficult. At the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, um, we're going to devote some resources in the next year to at least trying to get a list of the uh, commonly and popularly mm. um, available varieties that have been patented, have utility patents right. on them. There's another level of patenting called PVP or plant variety protection. And that was really the only legislation that was passed in this country allowing for patenting of plants. And there is a a separate PVP database that you can search for variety names that have been patented. 
And so those really aren't as hard. I think there, it's still, I've found there are some anomalies in there, but generally you can find varieties that have a PVP pat protection. The problem is since 1980 and especially 1989, uh, due to a couple of Supreme Court rulings around that law, we now allow plants to be patented under the what we call the utility or the regular patent law in this mm-hmm. country, the same one to microchips or software around. And that make and and not only plant and patent varieties, but plat, patent genetic traits inside those varieties. And I think this is what Elizabeth is referring to. And so the, it's impossible to search the patent and trade office for variety names to see if things are patented because sometimes only a single trait inside that variety is patented. And you don't know what that trait is, and so you don't know what to search for. And so it's virtually impossible. And up to this point, and I've written letters now for three years to major retail outlets and companies that are supplying these seeds in the United States, asking them for complete lists. And up to this point, they just don't feel like I've been, I I don't have a list. They either say we don't have one or you can go to the patent and trade office and and search, which isn't true. Or some of the catalog companies say we don't maintain a list. And so we're just left in the dark right now. And that's really, you know, I, uh, there have been discussion at the organic seed growers conference about this, about Uh how hard this is for breeders. They don't know what to, you know, they don't know if they're working on something that will eventually be found. Patented. So it's a real yeah. interesting question. I'm wow. the, the motivation, just finish up by saying the motivation for the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance for me personally is because we have 82 seed libraries in our network now that you can search for on our directories. And the compromise that we reached with the American Association of Seed Control Officials to allow seed libraries to operate without commercial licenses. Yes, the compromise was that we would not have patented material in the seed libraries. And again, right now we don't know. <laughs> How do you know that? We don't even know. And so in order to comply with our own agreements that we have, at some point we need a list. And so there seems to be this, well, let's not talk about it and we can't do anything about it anyway ethos out there. And for me, that's not good enough. We need to be open, honest, and transparent. There are reasons why industrial agriculture can argue that they need to patent these things right now. But make those arguments and give us lists. Be above board, but don't just try to hide this thing as year after year more of these varieties are showing up in certified organic. I used to think that when I bought certified organic seeds, I was doing the right things. Now you could be buying utility patented, the most restrictive intellectual property protection of any plant ever on the planet when you're buying your certified organic seeds. And that just doesn't seem to fit with me. That's my own opinion. So Right. Wow. Well there you have it. So give us a in the nut in a nutshell, uh, Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. Where do you where do we find you at and give us uh what you're up to? <laughs> so Rocky Mountain Seeds plural dot org. We're just a grassroots network of people that want to make sure that we have enough diversity and enough seeds in our own region to take care of ourselves. That's seeds for the Rocky Mountains, from the Rocky Mountains. And for us, the Rocky Mountains stretch from Canada clear down to the Mexican border. We're the people that are in the deserts and up high at 10,000 feet and trying to find the weird stuff that works, you know, at the edges of what's going on. And so if you want to join us, you can 
you get our sign up for our newsletter for free. We try to get as many people who want to support what we're doing to give us five bucks a month. You can sign up for one of those repeating giving programs. That that's what helps us most. We're getting more and more of that. And you can search our online directories. You can pull up a map of our 435 seed stores now. And you can see where they all are. And if there's one living near you, you can click on that little dot and all their contact information and what they're growing and saving will come up. And you can connect with them, get seeds, share information, learn tricks right where you are now. And our network's growing all the time. More and more people are signing up for these things. We've got directories for seed teachers and for seed libraries and seed businesses. And so all we're doing is help maintaining the network. We try to teach people how to do this stuff and we try to maintain the network. And that's really all we are. Nice, nice, nice. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us this evening on our monthly seed chat that we then turn into a uh, monthly podcast. So thank you. Thank you. I so appreciate you. And thank you. Keep up the good work. These podcasts are invaluable. So yeah, this is you what bet. we should be doing. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. I really appreciate it. And I will catch you guys all on the flip side. Have a great month and we'll catch you next month. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.